with Hall of Fame football coach Dick Vermeil, Hall of Fame person Dick Vermeil. Coach has been, at this point, has been out of football for 14 years. He did. He was a pitchman for Cadillac. He worked for CBS. He was one of the best analysts out there. Um, just as intense in his anal- in his in his work for being an analyst. I remember again you telling me the story of driving with the two deep depth chart on the front of your car, and so when the you didn't do it while you're driving, I hope, but when you'd stop at a light. You could look and you could say, okay, the second team guard is it's always oh no question. Yeah. Better it uh, knowledge is twice as hard as the NFL. Twice as hard. So, so when you got back now, first of all, what you you'll always be a football guy. You're a football guy, right? And that is never gonna change. And it never changed in those 14 years. No. But what was it that made you say it's okay to go back in the water. It's okay to get back in it with, I don't, I won't do what I did to myself again. Yeah. Well, I had had a, every year I was out, I had an owner approach me. Two of them, seriously. One of them, the Tampa Bay Bucks, offered me a job on the phone. Folks, what's his name? Uh, Culver. Yep. He was a friend of Lenders. I was in Calistoga visiting my dad. He was dying of cancer. And he calls me on the phone. He says, I understand that you're considering taking Lana Falcon job. And I says, well, it's supposed to be a secret, Mr. Colorado. But uh, I told him to give me a week to think about it. I was going to visit with my dad. And I got back. I told him I would maybe I'd meet with because I wouldn't meet with anybody. And he said, well, if you're going to do that, he says, I'll tell you what. You come and coach Tampa Bay. And you could write your own contract. He says, I have more money. My family has more money than we can spend in, in lifetimes. You write your own contract. Just come and coach my football team. I, you talk about swallow. I couldn't believe what he said. So I said, well, I'll get back to you, Mr. Bowerhouse. Thank you. I sit down next to my dad, and he's dying of prostate, drying of, oh, oh, geez, pancreatic cancer. And he's in bad shape. And I say, Dad, you can't believe what just happened. He said, Mr. Culverhouse, who owns the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, outright, no part, he owns the team, just offered me a job that I can write my own contract. Money's not a man. What do you think? And he looks me right in the eye, turns over, he says, let me ask you this. Do you need new aggravation? I said, no. He said, no, don't take the job. And I didn't didn't that's because he said that if you don't need the aggravation don't take that job and the money nutty i would i've never been i've never had a football agent i've never had an agent i never wanted anybody to be between me and the owner or and old president general manager it was me and him when i came home when i took the ucla job in san francisco when i got home carol said what are we going to make i said i don't know i didn't answer <laughs> John, if John Shaw hires me at the Rams, I didn't have an agent. I knew, uh, God, Demo, Marvin Demo, and he was personal friend of, the, of John Shaw. And I says, have him do up the contract. Paid me, uh, I made $5 million in three years coaching. And he said, well, uh, uh, 
I was a, a five-year contract was going to be end up being worth seven and a half million dollars. They said, "Would you, would you like a, uh, exactly?" Or said, "Would you like a clause for winning the Super Bowl?" Yeah, how stupid I am, Jeff. I look at it and said, "John, the money you're paying me—that's the job you're paying me to do. Why would you pay me more if I did it?" That's exactly what I said. To so I'm you drive a hard bargain. You're you're a tough negotiator. Yeah, my wife always says, "Well, they, did you ask him if they'd take more?" Uh, I I just I've never wanted money to influence what I do professionally. And uh, see, I'm probably the only coach in the history of the Super Bowl that didn't make any money. I had no bonus, and I gave my bonus for winning the game to my coaches, divided up among my staff. And uh, shit, but just wearing that ring and doing what they did was enough. But I had to be different. I had to attack the main things and know what the main things are, and then All right. and designate. All right, now, now you go back to St. Louis, and I come down and visit you in minicamp. And I remember I was staying at the same hotel the coaches were staying at that, that, that time. I'm riding it up in the elevator with Bud Carson, who's smoking in the elevator, right? Oh, yeah. But what a collection. Seven ex-NFL head coaches or pro football head coaches, because Dick Corey was a head coach in the, in the USFL. Seven head coaches on your staff. They called them the Magnificent Seven. I mean, yeah. you're talking about Frank Gans, Dick Corey, Jim Hannafin. It, unbelievable. Hannafin couldn't say two sentences without putting three F-bombs in it, but what a great offensive line coach. Yeah, yeah, he was. That was a great staff. Jerry Rowe. Yep. I let Jerry go after two years, and I, I interfered just enough to make him less effective as that he really had the ability to be, but he did a good job. He really did. There were other things in that, and I brought in, I brought in, let's see, I brought in, uh, excuse my, my mind, I'm going to sleep here, Mike Martz. And, and and gave him, I I didn't delegate it. I designated him. You are the offensive football coach, and I'm going to leave you alone. I won't even come in your meetings. Just be yourself. And first time, I, you know, when when you came to those Renegade, there were times when their OTAs, my first year there, we didn't have enough players to go 11 on 11. They wouldn't show I remember. up. I remember. It's not mandatory. It's I not mandatory. I mean, it's amazing. Some guys in LA, they didn't fly and be in there because they're old. Remember, they had moved two years early from, right. from LA in that. So we would have enough fires. It was it was unbelievable how low that program had dropped from a football structure standpoint. And we shook them up. I went back to exactly how we did it in, in Phil. Went back to double days, full pads. Uh, we didn't take the pads off until after Golan Authority. Friday, the 16th game of the season, okay, for two years, for two years. And then okay. the, the third year, I know we're here. We're here. And I, I backed off. I took about 25 minutes off the three-hour practice, really. Is what I, and, I, and I cut back on the full pads, double days, as much and that kind of stuff. And they, by that time, those players could recognize the difference between extremely hard work and hard work. And, uh, and there were only nine guys left off the roster. You know, they disappeared. They, and I got rid of people. I got rid of some of their first-round picks. You know, I had to. I had to cut the best football player on the team my first year after five games. And Lawrence Phillips had to cut. You know, and when players on the roster 
see, God, they just cut the number one player on our team. We just you just let the number one offensive tackle they drafted a year or two go go. Uh, all of a sudden, when you say something, you have their attention. Yeah, they trust they trust what you say. Yeah, I remember that because you had moved on from Tony Banks, and you went out and and you got Trent, Trent you know, yeah. free agent, and he was the you you were becoming a good football team. I don't oh, think yeah. people really yeah. understood that you were becoming a good football team. I want you to speak on something though that that I remember was a part of that time. Um, and it's unusual. It was the first time I had ever seen it. Um, at the end of practice, typically, the head coach will speak to the team. What you did in minicamp was had an assistant coach every day speak to the entire team. John Bunning, the, the defensive coordinator, linebacker coach, spoke to the team one day. Then Big Daddy spoke to the team the next day. And then Wilbert, which is empowering your assistant coaches and i thought it was i thought it was genius actually because wilbert's message didn't just get compartmentalized with the running backs it was spread throughout the entire football team was now tell me about that strategy well that's that's growing as a leader you know it's important that they trust the head coach okay but it's extremely important that they trust the guy that's coaching them. And when they see that the head coach has enough respect and trust in his assistant that he's hired to coach his position and he's put in front of the entire squad, uh, it, it adds a dynamic to the relationship between me and my staff. You know, and uh, I think it was, you know, the other thing we did that third year with the Rams, that I don't know how many coaches would do it. We never went to a hotel the night before a home game. You know, I tell that to people. They don't believe me. I tell that to people. They don't. Yeah, I did it for five years at the Chiefs. Never went to a hotel the night before a game. Never had a problem. Bob truck. Yeah, you, you develop trust and respect. And you know, if someone gets out of line, it's going to be the players that solve that problem. I can, you know, I just know that. But, uh, you know, I, 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 I just learn that as I grew and recognizing, you know, I'm not the only guy coaching this football team, you know, and, and, and I need help. I've been out of it 14 years. I need Bud Carson to say something in this football team. And I can tell a couple of stories on Bud about his meetings. Oh my God. <laughs> and after the one preseason game, I sit in on the defensive film breakdown the next day on, let's say it's a Monday. And he gets after that. It's all you cannot old-fashioned bud guards. He gets after their asses. Now, I'm trying to rebuild the morale of a football team. I had never heard a coach take on a team. So this best player, the worst player, the, oh, I need to get after So he finishes his meeting. And I get up, guys, coach, you know, Coach Carson got all the grades. He's coached four world championships. He's no ring talking. And he's mad now. So don't don't take it personal. He's back. Okay. So I leave. Ten minutes later, that meeting's over. Bud comes out. He says, Coach, don't ever do that to me again. He said, I'm setting the tone for these sons of bitches. He says, That's exactly what he said to him. I said, Bud, I'll I'll never ease up on a, in one of your meetings again. But I'll tell you, the players loved it. 
Yes, they. Uh, everybody I've ever known that played for him and uh, that played for him for more than one year really yeah. loves him. Really loves him. And every, everybody knows the story because we've seen the Kurt Warner story. We've seen it, and I mean the the amazing, amazing turnaround. You win the Super Bowl. So I want to kind of bypass that, and you walk away again after you win the Super Bowl. And I think it's, I think that's the end. I think that's the, what a way to go out on top of the world, the world champion, all of the things that you had done to build that organization and build that football team. And this, you know, I mean, the, it was almost a storybook saga, right? Yeah. You walk away and then your buddy from your UCLA days, Carl Peterson, convinces you to come back one more one more time in Kansas City. And you took the Chiefs job, and I called to congratulate you, and you weren't there, but I talked to Carol, and I said, Carol, what's he thinking? And she goes, once you've been king, it's hard not to be king. And <laughs> what, what was it, what what took you back, Coach? What was it that made you say, I, I got out of it too early? Well, I recognized when I handed out the, Super Bowl rings at the party in May. I'm putting rings on guys' fingers and secretaries in the building and the owners and all that. And I said, God, I, I was part of this and now I'm, I feel like I'm outside. When I leave this banquet tomorrow, I'm no longer affiliated with football. And I, but the reason I went home is my kids wanted me home. And, you know, I had this, I had a big trophy back here, my first coach of the year trophy. And most of the coaches on it after they were coach of the year got fired. And I didn't want to end up being one of those. So I all these things entered. I, and I, we're having grandchildren. I love my family. So I, I come home. And Carol's happy. I'm happy. But every time we talk to our kids, hey, let's get together. Oh, God, we got a volleyball game. We got a, a flag football. We got it. They, they were never available. <laughs> they are always busy. And then my daughter and family, they move away. So uh, anyway, uh, when he comes, when Carl comes and I knew the rumors on Lamar Hunt, what a great man he is, and that kind of stuff. And Lynn Styles came with him, and uh, we talked, and they're going to pay you. And uh, I said, all right, I'll do it. And I'm glad I did because it was great. Kansas City is a great city. They're as, every bit as passionate as every team. They're not. They're not a, a mean crowd. They're, they don't. They're they're not quite as intense. Okay. Uh, and Lamar Hunt was just one of the finest, whether he's an owner or not, one of the finest individuals I've ever been around in my lifetime. Just great, great man. Humble, thrifty, uh, never criticized. He would write me a note, and no man in the world can print legibly as small as Lamar Hunt can print. You you have to get like this. My God, what's this? Shit? And he would, he would write me a critique or a little note of, and it was always on the positive side. Everyone's, and he loved, he loved coming to football practice. And see, he wouldn't go to many because he hated swearing. And a lot of coaching staffs work on, uh, as you know, on the, you know, everything's a swear word. And yeah. he hated that. So he wouldn't go to practice. And he started coming to our practices because we would coach that. Yeah. A great story on Lamar Hunt. We're now into the mission. I'm second or third year there. And he comes to me. Uh, what we go comes in on Friday. He comes in my office. Says, "Coach, would it be all right if I come to your team meeting tomorrow?" Lamar, <laughs> it's the owner. 
you're asking your head coach, you own this team, you can do whatever you want. So he comes to the meeting. He is absolutely, you know, he comes to my meeting. Uh, then he stays for Al Sauter's offensive meeting, his installation, the first 15 plays, and all this kind of stuff. Next week, he comes back again. He says, can I bring a good friend? I said, sure. The next week, he comes back. Do you think you could hand, could I have one of those 15 play sheets? He's the owner of the football team. Well, we've got uh, just a great man. And uh, fortunately, well, we gave him one great year. We couldn't. We could never get enough defensive players to be a good, def- a great defensive team. And uh, year, the our third year, we go nine and zero. Yeah, and go thirteen and three, and we we could win the Super Bowl if we could beat to play defense. Oh, if we yeah. could beat the we could beat the other teams, but we couldn't beat him throwing the ball. Yeah. Even at that, we win the football game if they don't call Tony Gonzalez's touchdown back for pushing off. Okay, we win the game anyway. Still the only game in the history of the NFL playoffs that neither team wanted. Okay. You were talking about, um, you know, Mr. Hunt. And, you know, I, I remember that 2000, your first training camp in, in Kansas City, I was there working for you. And uh, in, in River Falls, we had the, the basketball arena where every where the kids changed and all of that. And there was a, it was a high jump pit in there. And yeah. I remember walking in one day to go to practice and I see this white haired guy with a bunch of kids jumping around on the high jump pit. And I, and I'm, I'm actually afraid for the guy cause he's pretty old. So I walk over and I, I look, it's Mr. Hunt. It's Lamar Hunt in the high jump pit with his grandkids and, and and I'm going. This is the NFL, right? This yeah. is the I. I it, but that's the kind yeah. of unbelievably guy you was. Yeah, um, great. Now, Kansas City. Um, as you say, it was frustrating. Had to be because you were so good offensively, and Priest Holmes and Trent and Tony and I mean, and what a what a really Will Shields and and I mean just really roll. I mean. It's just some amazing, amazing football players. But again, couldn't get past the Colts in that final. And what what made you say now is time to walk away? Now it's enough. Well, I, well, I coached two more years after that. I came back the next year. And we only won seven games. We lost the first three, and we're big, but we lost to three real fine teams in a row by a penalty or a fumble, or we just didn't score enough points. But we. The defense played well enough for us to win it. We didn't win it offensively. So and then then we go to the Ravens and beat the hell out of the Ravens on Monday night on the fourth game of the season, running the ball. Just ran it right down their throat. Old-fashioned game. In fact, your Montana State wide receiver, uh, what was it? Green Valley, was it? Yeah. He, he's the star of the game. You know, and I love that kid. I love that kid. And he uh, he did an unbelievable job. Caught a couple while he had a nice one called back and everything, which because we were injured receivers and he was active that week and he played lights out. Little guy that really play. Yep. I uh he didn't get treated fairly in our program because he was inactive every other week because of salary cap stuff. At least that's what I was told. And uh, but I loved the guy. He could play. He could really play. And uh, yeah. Anyway. All right it, now. I want to spend some minutes with something that I think personally 
is really important. You gave me once upon a time your coaching manual, right? And it was, to me, a blueprint for doing it the right way. And you used to have a saying, it's not about doing the right things, it's doing the right things right. Yeah. right. I want to I go through some of the points. And coach, I still to this day, before every season, I read the manual. Yeah. And I've started now to put it out on social media because I think it's absolutely critical for young coaches or people everywhere to, to understand and hear this philosophy. Number one thing, before you can teach, you must reach. Explain that one. Well, if they don't listen to you, doesn't matter what you're saying. You know, they, they can hear you because they hear you doesn't mean they're listening. You know, and uh, my wife says I do that all the time. But uh, <laughs> I just got it. You've got a you've got a locker room that's influenced by many different environments. First, how they were raised. Uh, first, who coached them in high school, college, who their agents are, who their wives are. A lot of people. So you, you've got to get them in. So when they're listening to you. They're listening to you, not just hearing. And that's that's true trust, you know, uh, but it takes time. It takes time to establish credibility. And you got to be patient with it. And it doesn't, it's, it, they're all, you're all going to recognize over a period of time, it's just some people that are never going to do it. You know, get them a job with somebody you play twice. You know, it just, it just you can try, but it just, it won't work. And I, I really believed in that theory, and I still do. Uh but, you know, I, it, later uh, I, I wrote it that I stole it from Teddy Roosevelt. Players don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Absolutely. And, and see, you're talking about the things I, uh, the very first part of every season. Yes. Because he knows that. And when I finished my career, that was 130 pages. Yeah. And you know what? You should, you should print it because it would make a best-selling book. I swear to God, coach, I, I really feel so strongly on that because those, those things, those things transcend football, yeah. right? It's about being, if you're going to help somebody get better at a game, that's tough to get better because everything you try to do well, there's somebody trying to make you look poor doing this at against you. You know, it's not like playing golf. There's nothing between you and the ball, but air, you know, but yeah. when you're an offensive lineman, you're a defensive lineman, you're a corner, you're, you're always against somebody. So you, you've got to, I've always felt you had to coach the entire person, not just football. You What you do is you coach, you don't coach football, you coach people that play football because you're not always going to have the best players. But you better be able to develop those that aren't the best players or your right. boss is never going to be deep with them. Now, that brings me back to fundamentals, right? And you talked about, and I remember this, this was from your Philadelphia playbook. Uh, it, you, you stress the emphasis of fundamentals because when you can get to your fundamentals quicker than your opponent, you can, and, I, and I'm paraphrasing now because I don't, but this is how much it's impacted me. I can still, without rehearsing it, I can still read it. Because your fundamentals allow you to compete against a great player to beat a good player and to dominate a poor player. Right. I remember expressly. Yeah. How important are fundamentals today in this world of schemes and, you know, all of the stuff that 
we spend so much time as coaches trying to out scheme the opponent as opposed to yeah well out play the opponent. Well, you know, I I really think that the fundamentals have first off the players are more gifted, they're bigger, stronger, faster, and they they come into the NFL further advanced in, in the skills of the game, especially athletically. But uh, the development of the fundamentals, so you so you can get to your fundamental quicker and more efficiently than the guy that's being coached to get to his fundamentals quicker and more efficient than you are. See, because you're always, you know, I gradually started saying football is not a contact sport. It's a combat sport. And if your fundamentals aren't good in combat, you're going to get shot. And uh, today you watch, I, I listened to all the great analysts, very few of them ever defined why the play broke down. Many times it's not because of the design or the guy dropped the pass. It's a fundamental somewhere broke down that allowed the pass protection. But hey, the guy didn't pass that very well. He didn't jam. You know, they didn't they didn't trade off the the, the lectures and textures and he's they break down funnel or he tackled poorly. Shit, he didn't bend his knees. All these kinds of things. Uh, the players are more gifted today, I think, athletically overall on the average. Uh, but they still need that fundamental basis. And a lot of plays break down offensively and defensively. Not because of poor design, but because of a, a not a good fundamental base. And with practices being shortened to maximum times, contact uh, padded practices being shortened and limited, what they cut down on is the individual time a coach gets to coach a player on his own personal skills to fit within the scheme. And uh, to me, I see that glaringly all the time. All right, now... <clears throat> This was one that this is one of my favorites. Players have, and and when I say players, I'm talking about people. Players have an incredible tolerance, an incredibly high tolerance for praise. They do. You know, not all these kids were raised like I was raised. No, I would, I didn't get very much praise, but I always knew my dad loved me. You know, and and I yeah, I and uh, I just think there's a, a people. You know, rec they have to be recognized for what they do well. They have to be appreciated, okay? They have to be praised. What you can't do is wholesale it. You can't tell somebody what a great, oh, I appreciate it. you did a great job, but everybody else looked the same film. No, they didn't. I learned that by being an assistant coach listening to that stuff. And because I've heard players walk out of there, I, I don't know, I got my ass chewed up, but that guy over there, they were praising me and play very well either. You know, uh, they, it, you, uh, People have an unbelievable tolerance for appreciation. That might be, uh, and the other thing they have, which it's in our DNA, going all back to Neanderthal. You need to feel needed. You need to be uh, in a group. That's why we have trouble with gangs in it. They need to feel part of something. But uh, the more you, important you can make that feeling in the NFL today, the better the team. Now, you may not go 16 or 0 or 17 or 0 now, but your team on a consistent basis is going to play better. That's, that's just their personality. Why? Because of the profile of all the individuals that make up the team. Yeah. All right, Kansas City, I open my playbook when I come to training camp. Yeah. There is a picture of the Vince Lombardi trophy, and underneath it, another one of the great ones I got from you, Keep the main thing, the, the main thing. thing. Yeah. All that. 
you know, get your team definition. Why are we coming to work? We're coming to work to win world championship. What what symbol is used to define you won the world championship? The Lombardi Trophy. I've never asked a player if he knew how, how tall the trophy was or how much it weighed. So I would start a meeting. Guys, I want you all to know this trophy is 22 inches tall. It weighs seven and a half pounds. It's made out of solid sterling silver. It takes 72 man hours of a Tiffany jewel in the old days to make it. Okay. It only takes one team to lift it. Now, well, you know, it takes one team to lift it. You know, seven and a half pounds, it takes 63 guys in uniform. Lift that goddamn thing. And you don't appreciate it as much until you've had the opportunity to lift it once and you didn't get it done. Uh, it takes the same thing to get there and lose as it does to get there and win. And I, I've always been able to respect that. And my Eagles did far more to get there and lose than my Rams did to get there and win. Get three years, you know, five all five Hall of Fame players on the offensive side of the ball on one team. You kidding me? That's you better win. Yeah. But uh, unfortunately, we developed some of those or gave people opportunities to be there. Yeah. But, you know, all, right. all those little things add to the depth of your leadership program, not just your scheme program and all that. It's the overall uh, foundation, really. Now, I want to finish today by playing a little word association. I'm okay. going to give you, I'm going to just throw some names at you. Then I want you to give me a one sentence description okay. or deal. Okay. We'll start with Vince Papali. Great kid, great intensity. Would have been a pretty damn good football player if he had, had any football experience. Uh, but he did a great job for us. He, you know, he made the team on a, as a free agent tryout guy, never played college football. St. Joe didn't have a football team. He played a little bit in a, like a semi-protein they tried to have in Philadelphia. But he didn't really know what the game was all about, but he loved to play. And he made the team on special teams. And at that time, you know, the Eagles would cheer if you made a first down. So it, he became a figure you could build on, you know, and uh, did a great job. And the, the movie, a lot of things in the movie aren't true, but the story's true, you know. And uh, I see him, all well, I just saw his son last Thursday night. And I, I, I hear from Vince twice a week. And he's done that. He's done. He made no money in the movie. He made all his money as a speaker after the movie. And, he's, for, I, and he still is. He still does a good job. I actually coached his son, and it was really fun to to spend time with him and talk about, you know, you know that he whole. Play a, he can play at the NFL. Yeah, he just needs an opportunity. He's got to go yeah. in the right place. Put him in the slot, but New England or one of these teams that really emphasize that guy, he can play. Coach, here's another one, and I know this is one of your favorites, and 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 this family is one of my favorite families because I coached two of the brothers, Wilbert Montgomery. Oh, yeah. yeah, Wilbert's like a son to me. Okay, I love him dearly. Yeah, he did such a great job for me as a player that when I became a coach 14 years later, I called him up and said, Wilbert, you're going to become a football coach. He said, what do you mean? I said, I just took the job of St. Louis Rams head coach and you're coming with me. I didn't ask him if he wanted to to go check with his wife or any. I just told him he was coming. And yeah, to this day, we're very, very, very close. He was at the Hall of Fame when I went in and he's just, without Wilbert Montgomery, I would not be in the Hall of Fame. You know, without Ron Jaworski, I wouldn't be in the Hall of Fame. Without Jerry, I, 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 
I have it boiled down. Do I know why I won? Okay. Wilbert Montgomery is one of the key factors in the career. And I'm one of the key factors in his life. Absolutely. So it's a mutual thing. It's a Absolutely. mutual thing. Absolutely. Lawrence Phillips. Disappointing. Disappointing. Gifted. You may be the most gifted running back next to Marshall Falk. Maybe as gifted as Marshall, more physical than Marshall. But a troubled, troubled kid. He was raised in multiple uh, foster homes. Uh, had had a hard time dealing with women. And uh, you know, when I took the job at St. Louis, he'd already played his rookie year there as a first round pick. But he was in jail serving time. And I I flew into Nebraska, picked him up when they were released from jail. I remember like it was yesterday, and then flew home with him and brought him to St. Louis. And I told him, from now on, your your LP doesn't stand for Lawrence Phillips. It stands for low profile. And he couldn't keep it. He had a drinking problem that I didn't know he had. And that's what really got him. If I had been coaching and had been what I was at that time and into the tune of things and coaches knew me well, I probably could have prevented uh, the situation from becoming as bad as it was. Because other people knew he had a drinking problem. They didn't tell the head coach. Right. Yeah. So... Yeah, you know, if you want to watch a great show, go on Showtime and pull up the story, Run for Your Life. It's an hour and a half documentary on Lawrence Phillips. It, it's an Academy Award quality job or SB Award. It's beautifully done. All right, a little happier, Dante Hall. Dante Hall. He's, uh, I had a bit great success with little guys. Okay, Wally Henry, UCLA and the Eagles. Okay, yep. then at, at the Rams, Azakim, you know, you know, they say, well, you got to be able to catch a ball in the crowd. If you're real quick, you don't have to catch a ball in the crowd. Okay. You don't get in the crowd very much. Yeah. You're, you, you avoid all that stuff. Uh, he was an underachiever. He'd been a running back. I like guys to convert to receiver or returner that have been a running back because they're used to being punished. They're used to attacking uh, the coverage, attacking the individual tackler and that kind of stuff. And, uh, most of the returners I watch play today in the NFL are imitations to him. If he'd have kept playing, he'd be in the Hall of Fame. But uh, he, I can tell you, uh, he didn't know how good he could be. I sent him to the Rural League and uh, in Europe to play, uh, become a wide receiver, then brought him back, and all he did was keep getting better. You know, he's still the only punt returner, kick returner in NFL history that in three games in a row scored on a return. Three games in a row. Yeah, and Frank Gans Jr. Uh, did a great job coaching him, like like his dad did for me at the Rams. Who, his dad was the most complete package I ever worked with as a coach. Best, the best. Dante, uh, I'm close with Dante. I, there's there is a great YouTube show on Dante Hall and me. You should see it. You'll love it. I, I'm I'm sure I would. Now I want to I want to close, and I coach you got to come back again because this has been. This will be 86 this month. No, that's well, listen, happy birthday, but you got to come back. Now I'm going to give you one last one. And this one's really a special one. Okay. Carol Vermeil. Yeah. Uh, like I said, you can make me tear. Like I said, Jeff, uh, she has no equal. No equal. For playing her role as a wife, a mother, a coach's wife, unbelievable. Well, at the Hall of Fame, every player there gave her a standing ovation. Right? Yeah. I've had 
more people talk to me about what they saw in that than anything I said. They were, you know, that's never happened before. But, you know, she's been involved in my career. And I, I gradually learned one of the most important assistant coaches you need as a head coach is your wife. Because she's going to have to understand the commitment you make. She's going to have to understand the highs and lows of your profile as a person. She's going to have to be involved emotionally and physically with you or she'll never appreciate why it's so important to you. And like, I, I, I bet you she is fed in our own house with her own hands, 85, 90% of the players I ever coached and all our coaches, you know, and, and, and enjoy doing it and enjoy it. And uh, no, so uh, like I said, there, I don't think there is an equal to her. Well, there is, ah, there is no equal to you. Thank you. Thank you. And I love you. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate you very much, buddy. Yeah, I know. I did that a long one. How many years since 1976 or seven? Yeah. Something like that. It's been yeah. a long time, but it's been an unbelievable experience to just be a little bitty part of your timeline. Well, I sh you should have worked with me. You would have made me better, I'll tell you that. Thank you. All right, Coach. Take good, take good care. Yeah, you too.